right, guys. Um, season five, huh? <laughs> What's going on? Um, this is Sergio, host of the International Series for the Dodgeball Podcast. Uh, and here with me, I have who I dubbed the head of the table of Dodgeball, uh, Dwayne. Dwayne, introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, so I'm Dwayne Wuzinski. I'm the current president for the World Dodgeball Federation. Um, I also double as the uh, president for Dodgeball Canada right now. And uh, yeah, I've been kind of doing the uh, dodgeball thing in, as far as governance goes for about five or six years now and, and been in dodgeball playing and, and uh, as a participant tournament person and all that uh, for, uh, for a lot longer. Oh, um, ah, so uh, how long? What was, uh, what was your first uh, dodgeball experience as a player? Well, I mean, you know, like most people listening, uh, when my first experience was probably in elementary school, right? Playground and, and, and school gyms and all the rest. Um, but in terms of any kind of a structured or formalized dodgeball was back in 2006. Um, my, my, uh, it was my wife that got me into it and, and most certainly regrets getting me into it. Uh, she, uh, she had a, she was working for a company. They had put together like a, a team for a, you know, rec league, local rec league. And she asked me if I wanted to play. And, uh, we found out that, uh, the, she was pregnant with our, our second boy. And so she bowed out. <laughs> so I kind of went with her, her work folks and played dodgeball. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, really enjoyed it. Um, uh, and then, uh, ended up putting up my own team and we've been kind of playing ever since. And what style did you play over there? Did you play foam or cloth? When we started, uh, so I was playing locally in Edmonton in a rec league, and we actually were playing uh, 8.5 rubber is what we started with. Uh, we played that for oh phew, years. Like I, I can't think of exactly how many years. Um, then when Dodgeball Edmonton started up as kind of like a specialty dodgeball league and, and kind of took more of the competitive players, uh, they introduced no sting and did that for a couple of years and then moved on to foam. So for my time in Edmonton, we've, we've kind of played most everything. We, we didn't have organized cloth here at any point. I have played cloth, uh, but uh, for my time here, I, I started in rubber and kind of went right through. Well, I did not know there was ever a point where Canada played with 8.5 that actually uh, made me raise my eyebrow. I'm like, oh, you guys actually did at one point. Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's still 8.5 leagues in, in Canada. There's uh, a lot of the sports social clubs here um, still play with 8.5. And I know there are a few leagues, uh, specialty leagues that do play with 8.5. Um, when we kind of started Dodgeball Canada and kind of brought all the different leagues under the same tent, the idea was not to, not to impose a ball type. You know, uh, obviously with things like provincial competitions, national competitions, we did that. Uh, but when it came to local leagues, it's like, you know, what the market wants, it wants. And and if you're meeting a demand and people want to play with rubber, they want to play with no sting, they want to play with big foam, um, that's cool. You know, whatever whatever made sense to your uh, to your kind of market. And um, yeah, we, we didn't really want to get in the way of that. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's actually really good that like, you know, for the most part, you guys just became united and were willing to sort of adapt as the times progress, so to speak. Yeah, that's actually really uh, nice to hear for you guys. Um, so let's get a little bit more in, about you. Um, what sports background did you have growing up? And so, what uh, background do you feel, um, or what sport do you feel translated best for dodgeball for you? Yeah, yeah. so growing up, so my dad, uh, I'm kind of a bit of an outlier as far as Canadians go. I, I never played hockey. I never played organized hockey um, <laughs> at all. 
uh, did a lot of other sports. My, my, my dad was a uh, semi-pro baseball player for a brief period of time. And uh, so he kind of got me into baseball when I was a kid. Played a lot of basketball. I, I, I preferred basketball. My dad wasn't as keen on, on that because, you know, he was such a baseball guy. But uh, played baseball for a bit, played softball, uh, did swimming, um, kind of did a little bit of everything, did a little bit of track. But basketball is what I played, you know, a little more regularly when I was, when I was younger. And, um, you know, in terms of what translates the best, I mean, obviously, you know, baseball, when you're looking at throwing mechanics and that sort of thing. But for me, I, I kind of felt playing that I, I really kind of looked at the basketball experience, right? Because there's, there's a certain court awareness piece that I, I think we overlook in dodgeball a lot. You know, when we talk about kind of the, the, the core skills and the fundamentals for dodgeball, of course, we talk about, you know, uh, jumping, lateral movement. We talk about throwing. Uh, we talk about, of course, you know, catching reflexes. Um, but for me, there was this certain piece of, of that court awareness, like where's the ball coming from? Where is it now? Where's the action? Where's the play? Who's beside you? Who's in front of you? Um, you know, when there's a tip off uh, or I'm sorry, a tip up uh, or a rebound, like who's around you. Um, and so that kind of basketball feel of like knowing where your teammates are, knowing where the action is, um, I find kind of translates really nicely into dodgeball. I would actually agree. Um, yeah, uh, you actually broke it down better than I did uh, last week as far as bas basketball goes. Um, <laughs> now, uh, how has uh, COVID impacted you um, when it hit over there in uh, Canada as a personally and as an organizer? Yeah, so, so I mean, it hit us hard. It hit everyone hard, obviously, right? But, um, you know, in Canada, we, we shut things down in March of 2020. We shut them down pretty hard, pretty quickly. Um, there were some provinces that still played. Canada, is, as you know, like the U.S., is a massive country, and and we're a little more sparsely populated, so uh, a lot more sparsely populated. So, you know, some some there were pockets that were able to keep operating while others were not. Um, but everything shut down pretty quickly. And then when the summer came, um, restrictions loosened a little bit, but then they were quickly clamped down again. The Atlantic provinces, you know, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, they they were able to play a bit more. But out west and in central Canada, it was all basically shut down. So this had a, a massive impact in a couple of ways, right? One, it really hurt kind of league organizers and league owners because um, it was difficult to kind of keep, you know, you can't keep the business running without your, basically your only source of income, which is your reg fees. So it, it, it really drove some pretty amazing people out of the sport, at least, at least temporarily. Um, at a national level from, say, like the Dodge Volcano level, uh, this really hurt us because you know most of our revenue comes from things like apparel agreements or travel agreements or registration fees nationals and of course not having these things meant we really had zero income coming in and we still had to pay for things like insurance or storage for equipment and that sort of thing and then of course internationally we all know the story you know we've, we've canceled uh, worlds a couple of times and had to move it back yet again um, you know because we just can't plan there's no certainty right so as a sport, I mean, it's been kind of devastating for us. The, the biggest thing about dodgeball is, um, you know, we, most of the organizations, certainly internationally and, and even nationally, there, there isn't as much overhead. There isn't as much running operational expense, right? So you can kind of take a step back. But I think for league organizers, you know, missing out on that and having the public maybe find other things to do has been a bit, bit damaging in a big way. For me personally, I mean, the, the work hasn't stopped because everything that's not happening on the court means that there's more expectation that things happen in the back 
office, right? That, that we do more around policies, we do more around planning. Um, and that's been just, uh, just a crazy amount of work. Probably personally outside of that is I miss playing, right? I mean, a big part of my socialization has been, you know, meeting people on the court, getting together with friends and the team that I've had since 2007, right? And, and now we're missing, we're missing that time together. So um, yeah, I mean, it's been devastating, like it's been for every sport. And for us, I think we're, we're way better positioned to bounce back when the time comes. But we just have to hope that in the two years that we've been off, we haven't lost too many people that have been, you know, willing to kind of step up and do so much of this work. Now, when you say um, easy to bounce back from, um, and care to elaborate, like, how, how do you feel um, dodgeball would be easier to bounce back from? As a, as a worldwide sport, rather, or uh, versus, let's say, Quidditch or, yeah. or um, was it like archery or you know just any other conventional or cringe or hinge sport? Yeah, I, I think well for a couple of reasons. I mean, I I, I don't know like if you're going to say Quidditch or maybe something like uh, um, ultimate. I know they call it flying disc at the international level, but you know ultimate frisbee and that sort of thing. Like I think those are <clears throat> excuse me probably in the same boat as dodgeball where you know, they, they can bounce back because they're so heavy grassroots, right? Like with, with dodgeball, we don't have, you know, national federations don't have a lot of carding systems to fund their athletes. We don't have um, stricter obligations at the international level in terms of, of how we, we assemble the product. And so the, the fact that, you know, in some parts of the world right now, we have some of our member federations who can, you know, get a bag of balls, find a space outdoors and get back to playing um it, it's pretty easy to do now i mean it's easy to do that at that level with basketball and some of those other things too but the expectation from a structured point of view i think is a little higher for those sports um you know we we don't have uh you know we're not we're not um while we while we sign the water code you know while we agree to the water code uh, we don't have to do drug testing we don't have you know those those bigger administrative pieces that we have to get the machine up and running again it's be a little quicker for us to kind of drop back into the thick of things um, than it would be for a sport that has all these other moving parts mm. and you, you mentioned uh water now, now i'm curious is there any um plans down the road uh to introduce actual drug testing at, at least at the international level uh, yes, <laughs> we ha we have to. Uh, we have to. There, there's really no choice for that. So, for um, different national federations have different rules uh, from their their countries and their sport authorities on how they have to proceed. So, just to give you an example, uh, for Canada, Sport Canada, um, if we get recognized into the sports framework, which our application has been on their desk for a frustrating two years now. Um, but, but if we get recognized, we, we don't have a choice but to implement the uh, anti-doping protocols, which are aligned with WADA. Um, now, the protocols for a sport like ours, it's not, you know, rigorous like you would see with track and field or something or swimming. It would be basically, you know, you'd, you'd have like national team members. Um, they would be subject to, to certain random tests with a, with a bit of notice. And then, you know, they would come to, to a national event or in the case of the WDBF, an international event, and they would do drug testing on athletes. But for us to be recognized nationally in Canada, and this is true for a lot of countries, and for us to be recognized by GISEF in the IOC, we have to um, sign the WADA code and we have to pay our fees and do all those wonderful things as part of the uh, package. <laughs> That'll be an interesting next step for sure. <laughs> yeah it's it's and it's an expensive step right in, in canada 
kind of the most basic thing we can do is would run us about five grand a year, which doesn't sound so bad, but it, you know, when we have such a small budget internationally, though, you're talking 40, 50 grand a year to kind of uh, play in that space. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, outside of worlds, what other events were you looking forward to um, that had to sadly be postponed last year? Oh, we had a lot of really um, interesting things up last year. I mean, I can't really stress how disappointing everything was uh, with the way it played out last year and to nobody's, you know, to nobody's fault. I mean, it, it is what it is and these things happen, but uh, we had a lot of things lined up. So, so last year we had um, three international events. We were trying to get the corporate games done in 2020. We had had to postpone that from 2019 uh, for different reasons. And so we had the corporate games tried to line that up for October. We had the uh, Tafisa world sport games that were supposed to happen in October. And in September, we were supposed to have the uh, CSIT um, world sport games. Uh, all of those were international events. All of those were great opportunities to promote the sport. Uh, corporate games would have been just about dodgeball, but it would have been part of a grander multi-sport um, organization, whereas the other two were multi-sport events. And whenever you can get dodgeball side by side with volleyball or track or basketball, it's a win. Uh, now, um, Tafisa was postponed till this year in June. And also in June is the uh, CSIT games that uh, we're going to participate in as well. So there's more information to come on those two events, uh, but they're going to be a bit pulled in. So Last year, if we would have gotten the, the go-ahead to move forward, we would have had teams from all over the world. Uh, this year, it's probably going to be mostly European teams because the, both of those events are in Europe. And, you know, a lot of countries just simply aren't in a position to have their programs up and going and travel by June. So, um, yeah, we had a lot planned. We still do. Uh, we'll try to make the best of, of, of the circumstances. But it was disappointing because there was so much on the schedule list last year, not to mention, of course, you know, um, worlds themselves in Glasgow. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea. Like outside of worlds, there was other things you guys had lined up. Um, but now that kind of like, now, now that makes me uh, curious. So I kind of want to know a little bit more about how you, and I'm probably going to say it in the most dorkiest kind of way, but how did you ascend to um, president of, uh, was it Dodgeball Canada, right? Your organization? Yeah, so, so for Dodgeball Canada, it was, um, you know, as I said, we were kind of playing rec league and you, you start meeting people and you start meeting people from different communities over time and you start talking about, you know, how things could be better. And, you know, there's always been an appetite to kind of formalize the sport a bit, standardize the rules and, and uh, create a kind of a, an athlete pathway for people who, who want to take it seriously, like who they want to play for, like a lot of, most people want to play for fun. They play with their friends after work or their buddies on, on the weekend and they're cool with that. And some people really want to get into it and they want a path. Um, the only way you really do that is if you have a formalized structure, right? You have some kind of framework to work within. And uh, so for, for Dodgeball Canada, um, you know, there were some informal groups that existed before and, uh, but they weren't, um, you know, they didn't have a full board. They didn't have a full, provincial membership um, uh, established, but they used to go to the worlds and they used to do some of these one-off events, but we wanted to kind of structure it in a way that aligned with the expectation of Sport Canada. So we thought, well, dodgeball has to operate the same way basketball operates or hockey or curling in Canada, of course, that's huge. Um, because if we don't, if we don't operate like they operate, we're never going to be taken seriously. Like we're never going to 
uh, have the chance to be in forget the Olympics, right? If we want to be in the Canada games, uh, you know, we, we, we have to make sure that we conduct ourselves like other sports do. Um, so that was kind of where it came from. And there was a, a handful of us that had been involved at the time with the earlier versions of, of these types of committees. And um, we decided, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to try to do this right. And so in 2015, we kind of went about putting all of our paperwork in and, and going down that road. Have you ever uh, ran any other like uh, sports organizations or leagues or is it just straight dodgeball after? Um, I used to, no, I, I've, I've done other sports governance stuff. I, um, I mean, you know, years ago, like I'm thinking like not to date myself, but I'm old, this, you know, in, in the nineties, I, I spent a bit of time as the uh, treasurer, you know, for the Ontario special Olympics in the region where I was living at the time. Um, and then I spent, about 10 years in track and field. I spent eight years as the vice president of uh, Athletics Alberta, which is like the provincial arm of Athletics Canada, which is the governing body for track and field. And I'd spent a couple of years before that with Athletics Canada proper, but mostly doing like communications work for them and, uh, you know, some subcommittee work that they were doing. So I've kind of been involved with that a lot. You know, I was a member of like the Society for American Baseball Research for a while, the Association of Track and Field Statisticians. Like I did all these kind of other things in sports, um, but it wasn't until dodgeball where I took, you know, more kind of a leadership role in saying, okay, like this is kind of a bit of a vision that, that I, I have in my mind and then worked with people who also had their, you know, their visions and try to come up with something that, uh, that aligned into the organization we ended up making. Oh, wow. Uh, so, oh, so you would say the biggest difference between you being the head of the WDBF and your previous experiences, you're more, you're more, you have like a vision plan versus others are already established before you. Yeah. You know, when it, it, that's, that's pretty much it. Right. Cause when I, when I went into athletics, when I went to track and field, you know, the infrastructure was there, right. I, I was coming into a system that was established. It was funded. It had a large, um, large membership, large fellowship. It was popular, you know, so you kind of walk into a system and, and you work within it. Now that doesn't mean that you don't have you know, I mean, part of our obligation as the board of directors was to create a strategy, was to create uh, a, a vision to to uh, recommend operational activities that align to that strategy and all those wonderful things. But uh, I mean, we didn't come in and say, what do we want track and field to look like per se, because that, that kind of existed. Dodgeball was different. It was a whole opportunity to come in and say, well, dodgeball is really like a thousand different things all over the world right now. What is our vision look like and what, what is our version of dodgeball as a structured sport what does that look like right so that that's kind of what what i've been able to contribute to in this role that was you know different from past roles wow <laughs> um yeah that's a, I, I had no idea yet like quite a resume uh prior to dodgeball so it kind of makes sense how you know how you how you are who you are like very organized have a vision plan and executed it well for what six years yeah well yeah about six years of dodgeball canada i i kind of laugh because i i you know i think some people listening who uh who kind of are are uh firsthand familiar with dodgeball canada say well you know the plan isn't always that organized it's not always executed that well um you know we we've uh we've struggled nationally to kind of do some of the things we wanted to do you know for different reasons and i mean i think if i if i were to look at the sum of five years you know for for the DC side of things, um, I, I, I would be proud of them. And I think that we've done some amazing things, but, you know, I think we've missed some opportunities. I, I think we've kind of 
had our priorities in different orders, you know, and, and um, you know, part of a new organization, uh, especially a governance one, is to try to, you know, try to course correct as you go and, and figure out, you know, well, maybe this path isn't really the, the right path to take. You know, can we shift tracks and, and can we do that without losing too much of what we've established already, right? Right. <laughs> so, so you think people here listening will be like, it's not, it hasn't always been organized? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be people listening who think that. And I mean, they'd be right. You know, I mean, we, uh, I think it would be be a lot to claim to say, you know, we've we've had this five years. Same with the WDBF, right? I mean, we've been doing this, like I've been, I've been kind of at that lead at the WDBF since 2017. And I mean, I don't think there's any way that we would say that we have this really clearly well-developed plan and have followed it lockstep. I think sometimes we've, uh, you know, we've, we've fallen backwards into some luck. Sometimes we have had a plan that's really paid off and it's really come to fruition. And, and again, we can be proud of that as a group. Um, and then we've had some things that I don't think have worked out that well, you know, that we've tried to push things in a certain direction. And after pushing hard for two years, maybe decided, okay, maybe it's, maybe we've got to pull now, you know, enough pushing. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the reality of the sport. I think that's, uh, um, I, I think it's, somewhat understandable given the nature of the volunteer nature of the sport and all the rest but but um yeah I, i'm proud of a lot of what we did but uh, a lot of what we've done but you know there's always room to, to for improvements and, and room to learn actually really good to hear uh because you know it's easy for you to just simply you know stick to the things you've done well and the things that have gone well at least on the surface level stuff that we see but then you also acknowledge that things might have might not have turned out as well as you would hope in some ways and you know you've adapted as the times uh, progress so to speak so it's actually good to hear that and i'm pretty sure uh, like you said you might get some jokes on your end when this episode airs but uh ultimately it, it it's very enlightening to hear that especially from a leadership position that hey you're not afraid to admit when you you know when something didn't turn out the way you wanted or just didn't work out a certain way and you just course correct egos aside and you know progress the sport that way so it's actually good to hear that <laughs> so i wanted to ask and we're about to get into the crowdsource questions really soon but before we do and i'm going to modify this well actually no because uh, you actually have played before so your pre-game ritual as a player and as an organizer so prior to a game how are you preparing prior to an organization um while everything's going on that we see you know i sit down on the bleachers or whatever watching worlds where are you and you know where's your mind at during that time so as a player and as an organizer yeah so um yeah no it's a great question I, I, as a player i mean i've 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 never been this you know elite level player right so uh uh as a player you know most of my my pregame ritual has been about me you know pressuring myself to to get my mind where, where where it should be i remember the first few years that i played and again we're talking local league you know low stakes mostly for fun and I, I i would drive to the game every week like literally sick to my stomach because i'd be so nervous about like my play on the court and it wasn't didn't mean anything like i said it's you're with your friends the other team's mostly friends and and, and the stakes are are nil right it's just for fun but there's still that competitive party that really just gets psyched up and you just think like, and I, it, you know, I'd be driving to the game, my stomach would be in knots and I, my pregame ritual was always uh, uh, like an O. Henry and a Gatorade and a, and a 
stick of beef jerky was what always what I'd eat before I get in the court. And then I kind of think about like, well, where should I be? Well, what am I going to do this game? Well, what I'm going to face this guy and this guy's got my number or, you know, I'm going to face this woman and she always, you know, does this and I've got to, and so I'd always have these things going on in my mind. So for me, it was just overthinking. It's about as, as ritualistic as it got. Um, as an organizer, a lot different, right? Because I don't find that I get that nervous when it comes to organization. There's always that kind of morning, those morning knots you get, right? When you get up and you're like, okay, the day's, the day's going to be, you know, eight to 10 hours. Uh, when we were doing the world championships in Toronto in 2017, we were putting in easy 16 hour days. I mean, we were getting there really early and leaving really late, you know, from seven to 11 kind of thing. And, um, you know, those, those couple hours in the morning were always that you come in that optimism, you got your coffee, you're ready to go. Um, but then those, those next couple hours are that crunch time to go through everything to make sure it's, it's all aligned. Um, you know, for me, when I go to a world's, um, the host country generally steps up and does a lot, you know, most of the, if not all the heavy lifting, right? So the United States in 2018, Mexico, 2019, they step up and they do a lot of that work. And so I'm lucky that I'm not, you know, I don't really need to be kind of in the mix on a minute to minute basis. But prior to those events, it's always a big deal because there's always things that go wrong, right? You, there's a problem with the venue. There's a problem with the flooring. There's a problem with the netting. There's a problem with the broadcast. Um, and because it's a volunteer organization and, and we're kind of a close family, um, you know, I'll get involved or, or some other folks, at the WDBF will, will get involved and we'll be on the phone and we'll help out and we'll try to figure things out. So, you know, when it comes time to the actual event, um, I'm kind of floating and, you know, if I'm needed and, you know, sometimes like in Mexico, it'll be like, Hey, a player got hurt and they need ice and I'm going to go and find, you know, going to go find where the paramedics are and, or I'm going to go find ice. Um, but that's kind of what happens with all of us, right? Like all of us in those national federations and at the WDBF level, when we're kind of like, I mean, a whole bunch of us were literally assembling the floors in LA in 2018, um, you know, putting up the nets in Toronto in 2017. And so, where we are, we're, we're just around, like I'll be around anywhere on the court and kind of where I'm needed, really. It's funny uh, you mentioned um, LA because that's actually where we met. Um, I was one of the volunteers there and I was there from the 9 a.m. or so to like eight at night and I was, I was beat. I mean, I, I was happy how the stage and everything looked, but man, yeah, I could tell you, I, that was quite an experience putting all that together, at least on like the manual labor side of things. <laughs> it's, and it's, you know, it's a ton of work, right? Like you, you know, in a perfect world, the sport is at a, a place where you're going to hire people to come in and do this. Um, you know, we'll get offers. WDBF always gets offers from companies that say like, Hey, we'll come in and we'll set up your floor and we'll do this. But whatever price they quote is usually too much. I mean, the budgets for those events are pretty tight. We spend a lot more money than I think people realize we do. Um, uh, so there isn't really the opportunity for like things like paid labor or whatever. It really, really does depend on volunteers. And, um, you know, without, without the volunteers, there's just no way that these things happen. Yeah. Um, so before we get into some of these questions that these people's asked, um, what has been your favorite world's event? Well, my problem, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I was just thinking about that. Um, so I've been to a few, uh, everyone had every one of the world's events I've been to has had something about it. That's been a bit, um, awe inspiring, right? Like, so when I was at in Toronto, um, it was the first world's event. And what I was really proud of was the court 
set up. I thought we had such a good court set up. They were, they were clean, the netting was great. We had tons of space. It was a great venue. Uh, the venue was, was very well equipped in terms of lockers. And so it just seemed like this really polished uh, professional kind of look to it, which I, which I loved. When I went to LA, um, what I loved about LA, so I love the flooring in LA, I know a lot of the people didn't, but what I loved about LA was I thought the vibe and the way that they did the broadcasting was so good. They had multiple camera angles. They had a really professional team. They had kind of the red carpet. And so from a broadcast point of view, from a media point of view, it just seems so polished, like so professional. And then in Mexico, there were a couple of things that really Mexico absolutely nailed was the whole feel of it. Like one of the things you want to do with these kinds of events is you want to have the host country put their stamp on it right? They want, you want, it's like when you do the Olympics, right? And they have like the mascots and they have the way they like the torch and they have the music of the opening ceremonies and the, they, they really have to put their cultural bent on it. And Mexico did that better than pretty much any country. I think it's been, I mean, Hong Kong did an awesome job in 2014 too, but I just felt like Cancun did such a great job of the opening ceremony, just really hitting the culture. And then the, the, the um, halftime shows and the whole spectacle around it and the medals and the trophies were all like, it was just, they just put everything into it that really kind of emphasized the international nature of the event. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't know that if I had to pick, I would obviously pick Toronto for, because it was my first uh, and it was one that I had kind of more of a direct hand in um, and one where I thought to myself, I, I had said to our team time and again during that event, if dodgeball can't succeed after this, it, it simply never will, like in Canada, right? Like this is our chance. This is our chance to put it on the big stage. This is our chance to show the country that it's a, a thing. We're welcoming the world here. Um, and so that one I think meant a lot to me because it was the first chance we had to do this right as a new organization. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, was it 20, 2017, the one in uh, Markham, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I don't, I don't know what it was, but yeah, you would, I guess it would be the flooring and, and the court setup because they look really good on, on stream. Uh, I, I was blown away. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. It, it's funny enough because, um, you know, the first contact we had with Europe um, was in 2017 after the event. We got a couple of calls and emails from some of our counterparts in Europe who said, that looks really good. Like, tell us about it. Tell us about the, and it was the setup, right? It was like the, the netting was really good and all that sort of thing. And people wanted to know about the, the mechanics of it all. So um, yeah, it was a good, it was a good event for the sport. But like I said, you know, LA had a different bent and, you know, brought broadcasting up to a new level and then Cancun came along and then they had this, this cultural piece that I think, you know, is exactly the kind of vibe we're looking for internationally. So, and, and what you hope is that you build on these every time, right? So when we get to wherever we are in Europe in 2020, um, we've got all of those elements, right? And it, it continues to build the, the event as this, this world-class piece. So you're saying it may not be in Glasgow whenever we start? Yeah, I don't, I, when we announced it, we kind of mentioned it would, it would remain in Europe, but I don't think it will be Glasgow for the, for the reason that, um, you know, British Dodgeball, uh, they really stepped up. They stepped up a couple years early. They, they contacted us in 2018. And they said, like, we, you know, we'd love to, to host. Now, at this time, the European Dodgeball Federation was still a member of the WDA. And so it was actually quite, you know, bold, for lack of a different word, uh, better word, to, for them to kind of step up and say, hey, we want to do this, even though we're not, you know, we're kind of not in your camp. We, we want to kind of be a part of this. And that was amazing. 
Um, and over those couple of years, they did a lot of planning, a lot of work. Uh, the, the venue that they had set aside in Glasgow was so good. Um, and they had a lot of great ideas in terms of um, broadcasting. The problem is that, you know, the UK was hit really hard and um, uh, British Dodgeball is one of our few federations that actually runs, you know, they've got paid staff, they've got, you know, bills to pay. And um, it was really, really difficult for them to continue to commit to hosting such a massive event. Because remember, like the next iteration of the World Championships is going to be far bigger than anything that's come before it, because now we're introducing cloth. Um, and so, you know, getting them to kind of step up and commit to it, they were more than willing to do it. But now, as hard as the UK has been hit, as hard as they've been hit commercially, um, I, I don't think they're going to they're going to be in a position to do that. But um, you know, we continue to talk with them and with other parties in Europe, and we do have a plan. We're not ready to announce it yet, but we do have a plan that I think everyone will be really happy with. So um, I, you know, it, the show will go on, and it'll be a, a good one. Nice. Um... Yeah, man. I had a taste of the UK last year, and I've been dying to go back ever since. So I'll be looking uh, for and as other parts of Europe as well. So, uh, like everyone, I'll be very, very, uh, very astute when the news come out. Uh, whatever, whenever you decide to share that. Um, so, to my surprise, you mentioned plain rubber, uh, 8.5, and no sting. So if you were to rank your favorite ball types from least favorite to obviously your favorite, what would they be? Uh, so, okay, well, we'll start. It'll be easier if I think if I start with my favorite. Uh, okay. This will surprise, <laughs> this might surprise you. I've, I've mentioned it in dodgeball favorite. My favorite to play with was actually no sting. Um, I, I really enjoyed playing no sting when we, we did that for a few years in Edmonton here. Um, I liked it because just at that point in my I don't want to call it progression, but wherever I was physically, whatever you want to call it, I actually did fairly well with no sting. I found like I could throw the best with no sting out of all the ball types I've had. Um, I could still catch quite well with no sting and it was fast and frenetic. And I really enjoyed that, uh, the pace of it. Right. So I really, really enjoyed no sting. Um, after that, I would say probably, probably foam and then probably um, 8.5 rubber. I played eight point when I played 8.5 rubber, I really, really enjoyed it, but the the rules were a lot different around headshots and ball height, and it was a little, a little harder to kind of uh, administer, I guess you could say. Um, mm -hmm. well, I did go and I played in elite. I played at elite nationals in 2018 in Boston, and we we brought a team down from Alberta and we played in the no sting division and in the in the rubber. So we did uh, co-ed, no sting, and men's and women's in in rubber. I think we didn't do pinch. Um, yeah. uh, but I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Like, I mean, the, the rule set was a lot different than the rubber rules that I was used to, but I still enjoyed a lot. We had a good time. Uh, we, we did better than we thought we'd do kind of, we just, it was a ragtag group of us that went down and, and that was a lot of fun. So I, I would, I would look at those three balls, I would say no sting foam and, and, uh, rubber. Uh, then after that, you know, there's the other two that I've played with are cloth and big foam, like, you know, the big 8.4 inch foam. Yeah. Um, but I haven't played with either of those that much to really be too firm on it. I, I, I would probably say cloth and then big foam only because, you know, between the two foams, I think I prefer the seven, seven inch. And then I think, you know, cloth, I, I had a small taste of it when I went to Manchester for the Atlantic cup and I played in some exhibition matches the night before. Um, and the, the kind of the, the, the 
the ball, the hard bounce of the ball reminded me of rubber a bit. A um, lot of fun to have something that has a little weight to it when you're throwing and catching. And so I really enjoyed that. And the, the rules of cloth are, um, it's the small little rules that I really liked, like the way that balls get put back into play from your, uh, uh, from your ball retrievers. The rules are a little different around that. And some of the subtleties were just really interesting to pick up on. So I, I, I did enjoy it quite a bit, but, but for those two types, I just haven't had as much exposure. Gotcha. I actually had no idea you actually played at an elite tournament. Now I'm going to really scour <laughs> more so to find footage. I want to yeah, see the. <laughs> there's, there's a, there's, there's a good clip of, uh, I think, uh, dynasty put together a headshot compilation, which is, which is kind of a dynasty thing <laughs> yeah. to do. And, uh, I think there's a really good one of me getting, smashed in the face from about three feet away in that one but um so you know there there's some some footage from that tournament out there which, you know, <laughs> uh, no, we, i'm sure we could find something else i'm sure we could find something else <laughs> ouch all right um yeah of course they would release a highlight video of that um <laughs> no i love those guys they're michigan guys so i got i gotta say that yeah uh, <laughs> Um, so let's get into the crowdsource questions. <laughs> Glenn Tibbe asks, any progress with the WDBF, WDA cooperative efforts towards GASIF and IOC recognition? Uh, yes. So the, the short answer is yes. Um, the, I mean, there's not a, a ton of detail I can go into because one of the things, you know, the WDA and WDBF have been talking on and off for, for quite a few years. Uh, we started talking in 2018 was looking really good, then got really bad. And it's kind of gone up and down, right? Because, um, you know, with organizations like this, as you can imagine, there's, there's that competitiveness and that protectiveness. And so when one organization does something, it's, it's easy sometimes for the other organization to kind of get their back up and be upset about it. And so sometimes it would be like two steps forward, one back or one step forward, two back. Um, but we've been talking for a few years. Um, and again, without getting into detail, you know, we've kind of made this agreement that we're, we're going to be a little tight-lipped on, on, on uh, what we share with the public until we know what we're doing, right? So people don't think we're going down one path and then we end up taking another. But uh, just to be clear, GISEF, so for those of you who don't know who GISEF is, it's the uh, General Assembly of International Sports Federations, and they're the gatekeepers of international federations. So they don't really, they have no decisions with respect to who gets in and out of the Olympics. They don't make any decisions around events. Their job is to just formally tap uh, an organization, say, yes, you are it. So, you know, FIFA, you are the international body of soccer. We all recognize that. Um, FIBA, you're the international body of basketball and so on and so forth. So um, as you guys probably know, back in 2017, um, in 2017, the World Dodgeball Association was, was uh, given observer status in GISEF. So what observer status is, it's kind of like a little, um, it's like, it's a lobby. You're sitting in the lobby. So you're not a member. Uh, you're, you're, you're not, you don't have the membership privileges, but you get to sit in the lobby and listen to the phone calls. Um, you know, you get to attend the meetings, but you're kind of a silent sitting in the back listening kind of thing. And the purpose of observer status is to give new federations a chance to grow without uh, saying, hey, you've got to do all these 2000 things before you're recognized. It's like, okay, you've done some of these things, you can have this observer status and maybe that's gonna help propel you to get more recognition uh, locally. So they were given that and that was kind of a big blow to us. Um, but 
we were able to do some things on our own, um, achieve substantial growth over the period of a couple of years, enough so that um, you know we were invited to submit our application to GAISF in August of 2019. We did that in October. Uh, we, we gave our initial letter of interest and paid our big, huge fee for, for the privilege of applying. And, um, and then when they renewed the status of the WDA, they said, look, we've got you guys, we've got WDBF, you guys have to sort this out. Um, and so both the WDA and us have basically, GISEF has made it very clear in their expectations that um, this has to be resolved. Uh, they're not going to deal with two organizations. And for the sport to succeed, um, you know, we have to come together and figure that out. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to figure that out. Now, it's not easy. Um, there's a lot of history there. There's a little bit of bad blood. But, you know, Tom Hickson and I probably talk, I mean, with the exception of the holidays, we probably talk once a week, once every two weeks. Um, we try to get to a point, I think where we are right now is we're at a point where we both understand what, what we want from the organizations, what we want from the sport. Um, and we are working together towards a solution that GISEF will endorse. Now, there's a lot of options to what that solution could look like. Uh, you know, I mean, anybody kind of listening can probably figure out, you know, two or three of them. Uh, but at the end of the day, we want to do something that's in the best interest of the federations, right? We've got lots of members each and those folks are committed to uh, developing the sport in their countries. So we, whatever the solution is, we can't be pulling the rug out from, from underneath anyone. So um, it's going to take a bit of time, but, uh, but I think we will get to a spot where there is one organization um, and, um, and, and then we'll be in a position where guys will say, yeah, this satisfies us and, uh, and on we go from there. Nice. All right. Um main host of the podcast, Steve Damon, asked a few questions. Uh, so first, what is your current policy or stance with the current pandemic? So the, so yeah, so obviously one of the things for, for us to respect is the kind of local authorities, right? Um, we, we, ha we have a policy. So what back when the restrictions started to be lessened a bit in the summer in, in Canada and in Europe and some other parts of the world, um, we knew we had to kind of publish some kind of a position. And so we worked with FIBA, um, well, not so much worked with them as leveraged their work, to be honest. We, we approached FIBA and we said, you know, can, you've got this policy on return to play. You've got some good guidelines. Uh, do you mind if we leverage these with dodgeball? And so they said, yeah, you can, you can use the policy. Feel free to use it. Give us credit, you know, give us a shout out and thank us. Would be really nice of you. Uh, but other than that, oh, and send us a copy of your version of the policy so that they had it for their records. So um, FIBA was really great in, in working with us and, and allowing us to kind of uh, leverage all the hard work they had done. So we had published guidelines, which are available on our website right now that you can download. Um, but the guidelines, you know, talk about how to try to limit player contact, how to, you know, uh, you know designate exits or increase uh, procedures around disinfecting. But really what it all comes down to is, is uh, we, we have to just tell people, you know, above all else, go with local protocols. Um, in Canada, uh, the sports uh, have released their protocols. Every province has their own protocols. This is true for Australia. This is true for Great Britain. This is true for the U.S. Um, I know when we released our protocols for um, 
WDBF, I know, you know, USA Dodgeball had kind of reached out and said, hey, you know, we're kind of worried that these protocols sound like they're a green light and we don't want people to think there's a green light yet. And it was like, yeah, point taken, um, you know, and maybe we should have managed the communication a bit better. But essentially, it's, it's not a green light. It's if you get to go, here are some things to remember. But above all else, you got to look at what the local local authority is telling you to do. Gotcha. Um, next, will we see dodgeball return soon? I think that we will see. Well, I mean, you know, here in Canada, like I said, we had we had some dodgeball out in Prince Edward Island that was happening. Uh, Newfoundland was playing until recently. Australia is playing. Um, there are a lot of countries that are 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 actively playing right now. So I would say, in it from an international perspective, like um, Iran, our members in Iran just held their um, uh, a big competition in Tehran today. So uh, there's a lot of people that are playing, and and dodgeball is still happening. Um, in Europe, it's really restricted. In Canada, the United States, and South America, it's really restricted. In Africa, our members in in um, East Africa, like in Tanzania uh, and Uganda, they're playing. So I mean, dodgeball's still there. Um, to the degree where, you know, is it going to come back and when is it going to come back? Well, right now, like I said, we've got Tafisa planned. We've got CSIP planned for June as international events. Knock on wood that those still happen. Um, and, we, you know, we've got, uh, we've already got Worlds in our site next year. We've got the Gay Games happening in Hong Kong next year that we're going to be a part of. So we're we're acting as though, yeah, dodgeball's coming back. It's it's uh, But it just might be slow and it's not going to come back all at once. It's going to happen here. It's going to happen there. And over time, it's going to, pop up one by one gotcha all right and finally what will a post-pandemic world look like in terms of dodgeball well i mean i think you know i i kind of want to make a joke that's it's actually a sad joke and say well we don't get a ton of people out at the stadium anyway um <laughs> but i mean it's true right we, we don't you know our, our crowds aren't huge and so kind of like crowd control you know this isn't the super bowl right where where you're trying to plan on how do you deal with 50, 60, 100,000 people um, coming through the gates over a course of a day, two, three, four. Uh, we've got smaller crowds. So our ability to control crowds is, is, um, is easier, obviously. And I think when it comes to those kinds of competitions, um, you know, that's what you'll, you'll probably see as one of the things was spectators probably be restricted. Um, I, I suspect, you know, there's going to be a lot more in terms of, um, you know, how we separate teams. Right now, the biggest challenge post-pan, you know, well, during the pandemic, but post-pandemic is not going to change a lot. I mean, I think the, the, you know, this is just my non-dodgeball, non-medical opinion, but I think the world we're living in now around, you know, um, uh, social distancing and, and protections, I don't think those are going to go away anytime soon. I mean, even when when the virus or when the um, the whole thing, the pandemic is under control and vaccinations are 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 mass. Um, you're still going to see these kinds of protocols in place, I think. So, you know, for us, it'll be like maybe more distance with the teams, maybe a couple of days of isolation on either end of competition, uh, more disinfecting of, of balls and equipment between matches, um, you know, that sort of thing. I, I don't know. The, the one advantage we have over sports, like obviously football, obviously basketball, is teams don't really mix. Um, so you can kind of come with your cohort team and you can still manage to keep a relative decent di distance from your opponent. Um, so in that respect, you know, we, we've got a built-in built-in advantage that way. Gotcha. And I, I almost want to ask, um, now, now that I have you on, it just hit me, 
which uh, world's event had the biggest of, uh, amount of people in the um, in the arena, so to speak? Because I know a lot of times, like when you guys you guys stream on Twitch and everything like that, so you get a lot of viewers that way, and argue you get more viewers on Twitch than anything. But which venue had or which world's event had like the most amount of people? I drop your jaw right away. Yeah, I I don't I I can't answer that with certainty because. I, I didn't make the trip over to Melbourne in 2016, but my understanding is they feel like they drew a couple thousand people there over the, over the course of the last couple of games, uh, you know, and anyone listening from, from Australia can, can jump in and, and correct me, um, uh, you know, when this goes live or in the chat, but I think that uh, I, I think they drew a couple thousand. I know we, we drew a couple thousand in Toronto over the course of a few days. The last two days, the, um, the facility we had held about a thousand people and it was pretty full for, for the, the last two days of the event, uh, almost packed. There's some great photos that really make the crowd look like energetic. It looked, they're awesome crowd photos, but it was, you know, limited seating. And then in LA, we had really good, like they, they built the stands for the last uh, uh, day of competition and it was, the stands were quite full. Now, again, I can't, I don't know what the number would be over the time, but I think it, it's pretty safe to say you're kind of looking in that neighborhood of a couple thousand people. Yeah, uh, I mean, looking at the photos from LA, definitely a couple thousand for sure. Yeah, and and I think you know, I I don't think that's um, I think that's pretty good. Uh, I I don't like it's that's never been a number that I've looked at and said, oh, you know, we should be so much better because, I mean, if you go to any kind of sporting event, I I I was um, I was getting a tour of a facility because uh, we were talking about worlds and, and nationals. And so, you know, sometimes you go to these communities or these people, they want to tour the facility and try and sell you on it. And uh, I was getting a tour of facility and the, the, there was a game going on and it was an international volleyball match between Canada and Trinidad. And this was a women's competition and it was, you know, a, a like international ranked match. And the, the, the flooring looked amazing. And they had like uh, signs all around the, the court advertising they had uh uh you know kind of like the led signs that kind of flipped and changed and super super professional look to it um but i mean there was a couple hundred people in the crowd and that's not to take away from the sport of volleyball but but the reality of amateur sport is you go to any any like i mean we've done um you know nationals here in edmonton for track and field and and we'll struggle to put 1500 people in the stands on a nice summer day right the reality of amateur sport is it's it's not on the top of people's list to go watch. Now, you know, in the United States, you have this ridiculous exception with college football, college basketball, <laughs> right. um, you know, but generally speaking, like even in my time in track and field, you could have a, you could have a, a world-class meet, you know, Usain Bolt and, and stuff running in Belgium and you'd still maybe have a couple thousand people in the stands. So I, I'm pretty happy that dodgeball at this level in its development can, can still attract some numbers. Nice. <laughs> Um, all right. So next question comes from Dom and he asked, what's your favorite part about being president of the WDVF? Yeah. Um, my, I mean, there's, I mean, there's lots I love about it, obviously, but, um, I would say that my favorite part actually is dealing with the people in other national federations, like dealing with our members. Um, it, you know, there were two things that I, I kind of say that I, I learned you know, in, in doing this role and dealing with, with different countries. One is that we are still very different. And the other is that we are still very much the same. Um, 
what I really enjoy is, so especially when we get close to worlds, it's not unusual that during the course of a week, I have a phone call and I'm talking to Pakistan and I'm talking to Mexico and I'm talking to Sweden. I'm talking to Great Britain. I'm talking to Tanzania, Cameroon, right? And you have all these different conversations. And it's amazing to me how much these conversations, how similar they, they all are, right? There's a lot of talk about, you know, if, if, if every single country that I just mentioned, uh, there is the theme of the government should support amateur sport. There is the theme of we really need to get this into the hands of the average Joe and Jane. There is the theme of we really need to bring this to the schools and we really need to kind of develop the, the youth um, stream for dodgeball. And, and no matter what the culture or the background, those themes come up time and time and time again. And so there's this really kind of wonderful feeling when you're, when you're in a role like this and you start talking to someone from, you know, all these different parts of the world and they start to talk about like, you know, well, let me tell you the problem with Haiti. The problem with Haiti is we need this. And I'm thinking that's the problem with, you know, that's the problem with France and <laughs> that's the problem with Canada. And it's kind of a bit comforting to know that everyone deals with a lot of these issues in sport. Now, obviously, the, the, the larger issues are very, very different from country to country. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the challenges are very, very different from country to country. But, there, but from a sports perspective, there's this very unifying view of what sport is and what it's for and, and how it can be good. And there's something extremely comforting about um, you know, getting that message from so many different people. Uh, it's kind of wonderful. And, and the community, I mean, I, I'm, dodgeball isn't perfect. We're far from it in terms of our community. We, we all know that. And we all know uh, the issues that, that occur in our community and in all of our countries. But we're, we're still fairly progressive in a lot of ways. Like, like some of the times when I'm dealing with countries where I expect them to be very strict on certain things, the dodgeball community is not, um, much less so than some of their other sports. And I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it, it does seem to be the case and it is comforting. Um, and it does kind of make you feel like maybe we're a little more connected. So to me, the, that's the best part of the, uh, is, is getting to deal with, with all these different folks. Getting to deal with all these different folks and realizing how, how much the same we are. That's actually, that's actually very uh, similar to why like I'm doing the international series because I mean, like you, I'm always talking to different players from across the globe and some I have close friendships with. And it's almost as if like, if I talk to player A and player B, like some of them, they both have similar stories as far as like when they started and what they'd like to see change and, you know, just stuff like that. So it's actually very uh, mirroring as far as like what I go through as well, more so on the podcast scene and just socially, but. No, for sure. For sure. All right. Um, my good buddy, Markel Stokes, uh, will there be an all-star game? Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. What I was, I think what he's alluding to is, um, you guys had some kind of like all-star event in Ontario or was it Mar Markham? I'm sorry, Markham. Right. Yeah, we did. We, we had an all-star game there. Um, so, so first of all, I, everybody loves the concept of an Ulster game. It, it's a bit harder in practice. So uh, to, just to explain, when we did this in Toronto, uh, in Markham, we had uh, the Ulster game. And the way we did it was once the um, medal matches had been determined, we took the teams that weren't involved in the medal matches. Then we took kind of like All-Stars from those teams. And then we, you know, we split them into two. 
Uh, and they weren't kind of strictly like, you know, East or West or anything like that. Like we had players from the same squads on, on opposing sides. Um, and then we played this game and it was, it was so fun and it was so well received and, and the players, you know, everyone could kind of the players on the court for the All-Star game could kind of exhale because their journey was kind of come to an end in terms of, you know, uh, meddling or, or going further in the competition. So now they could just have like fun with it, which is exactly the kind of thing we want to show the public. Right. So I think it translated really well. It showed really well to the crowd. Uh, I'm super glad we did that. It, it was a ton of fun. We did. The, the, the problem with an all-star game in general is, you know, if you look at any other sport, their all-star games are kind of all-star weekends. Like the NBA does it, you know, the NFL does it, baseball does it. And they carve out this time with days off before and after, and they, they, they separate the all-star game. And if you're the NFL, you don't always get your best players. And it kind of happens after the fact. And it's a little bit of a, it's a, it's a weird kind of anticlimactic thing that they do. Um, baseball, they've tried to put some meaning into the all-star game with the way that they, they, the stakes they play for. And basketball tries to make it a, this big show. We don't really have the opportunity to do any of those things. Um, so for us, the, the best chance for us to do an all-star game is, is, is at a world's. Um, but, you know, like the player, nobody wants to get hurt at an All-Star game if you're going to play. So you kind of have to do one of two things. You either have to have the All-Star game after the event. Uh, and again, it's a bit anticlimactic at that point and, and you know, maybe not as, as appealing. Or you do it kind of like we did in Toronto where you you kind of limit the um, limit the players to, to no, the non-metal games, which has a lot of value. Um, and if you can schedule it, great. Uh, but I, that's kind of what we're limited to at this point, I think until we get to a point where we have got the cash and the money to run like a, an all-star weekend and, and try to make a big deal of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I gotta say like, um, they're like, uh, like Markel, like that was one of my favorite highlights from, uh, Toronto. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm butchering it. You can say Toronto. I, I always say Toronto cause it was like the it's greater Toronto Metro. Right. So yeah, that's, okay. all, that's all good. Okay. But <laughs> yeah, like when, when I was watching the stream with him a couple of years ago and I was like, Oh, they have an all-star game. This is so cool. So it's something like of a inside joke that we have, but like we, we really enjoyed it. So that's why he asked it. And uh, I'm not opposed to having it like prior to the finals. I think it's actually like a nice, uh, how do I say this appetizer for the finals. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, we did. And in Cancun last in Cancun in 2019, um, they didn't do an Ulster game, but they did a uh, cloth exhibition. Right. So we had kind of Great Britain attend for the first time. Um, and uh, we knew that, the you know, by this point in time, the, the European Dutchball Federation had now joined the WDBF. So cloth was a part of our future. Absolutely was. But we couldn't. We couldn't accommodate it in, in Cancun in, in, in the turnaround time. So we had a cloth exhibition, which kind of replaced the Ulster game. And the cloth exhibition was a lot of fun. The players really liked it. A lot of the players who had never played it had a chance to do it. Uh, and then Great Britain, who had done really well in the tournament in foam for, for this being their first tournament, you know, they got a chance to kind of go and say like, okay, well, this is our game and let you show, let me, let us show you how it's done. So it's, uh, it was a, it was a great thing for us to do. So I, I think for, for future events, it would be nice to continue something, whether that's an Ulster game like Toronto, whether it's an exhibition like Cancun or whether it's something new entirely. Um, but the, but the spirit of doing something that kind of elevates the game and shows a different side of it, I think is, is important for us to continue. Couldn't agree more. All right. Um, well, final question comes from Rosie Everett, uh, She's actually like one of my favorite people to have interviewed thus far, uh, or last season, I should say. Um, why are you still president after all the stress you've been through? 
big love to this guy. He's a champ for the sport. Uh, Rosie's one of my favorites. She, uh, Rosie, uh, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people listening will know who she is. So she, she of course, has kind of done the whole gamut. I mean, in addition to being a national, international level player, you know, she's run her own local league. She's been president of, well, current president of the Australian Dodgeball Federation, current president of the uh, Asian Pacific Dodgeball Federation, and and by extension, uh, vice president in the WDBF. So she's kind of seen everything. And and um, she, I, you know, I, I appreciate that comment very, very much um, and not surprised by by the thoughtfulness of it. Uh, but, you know, above anyone else, she, she kind of knows what's involved with doing this kind of work. Um, her and I worked together on getting our guys of application in, in, in uh, throughout the end of 2000. So it basically took us, what, four or five months to, to do the application and get it in. And she coordinated so much of that work. And I think, you know, Without her, I don't think we would have got that done. Period. Um, but but she knows it's it's just a ton of work, and it's you know I mean in a couple of years the the membership will have a chance to kick me out and 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 get someone else in in that role if that's what they want to do. So, uh, but until then I'm I'm gonna stick around. I I uh, you know for nationally and internationally my goals are different, but personally you know something's got to drive you to continue to do work at a volunteer level. And uh, I've got kind of my goal in mind for WDBF. And, and if I get there, you know, maybe I can exhale and walk away. And, and um, you know, if I don't, well, it, it is what it is, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of give you like some nice little like trivia. So after my interview with her, we spent like a rough, like 30 minutes talking. And I got to say a good 90% of the time was pretty much singing your praises, so to speak. So. <laughs> really uh she really loves you man and, oh, uh, it's 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 mutual yeah she's she's one of the great people in the sport and i think you know um i mean that's just it's lovely to hear i'm I, you know it's just lovely to hear but it's uh you know our sport is is uh i mean rosie's a gem and 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 you know we are our, our um i gotta say like our whole wdbf board you know like max Golda coming on from europe and and really kind of saying to us hey this is what europe wants to see in dodgeball and pierre korvalek ste stepping up as as our secretary general and he's from sweden and pierre i always call pierre the moral center of the wdbf you know if i've got an idea and i'm worried it's kind of a little too devious or it's a little too unethical like i kind of run it by pierre because i know that if it is he's going to call it out and i could be like okay okay um, Pierre's wonderful. Brian Lee, you know, from Hong Kong, deputy president. Brian has been there since day one in the WDBF. He has given so much to the sport. People, people don't even know, uh, you know, the depth to which Brian has contributed from a corporate perspective and, and a supportive perspective over the years. Uh, Jake Mason, you all know Jake. You all know what Jake's done for dodgeball in the U.S. Um, and then, you know, a couple of the names that you might not be familiar with, Diego Bortola, who's our VP from Latin America. Um, with the work he's done in making the sport legitimate in Argentina, like, like Diego is a by the book person, right? Like he's doing everything the right way. Uh, and he's the first person to kind of raise a flag when he thinks we're doing something that's a bit off center. Um, Hippolyte Coombe, who's our vice president for Africa out of Cameroon, uh, has done amazing work in getting Africa and dodgeball in Africa going. And you know, dodgeball in Africa is not at a point where you're going to see a lot of international competition from those countries, but he's bringing it to the schools and to the kids. And I remember when he first approached us, he said, you know, um, girls in Cameroon don't really have a lot of good opportunities for sport. And, and this, he thought, was a vehicle for that. And, you know, he's kind of come good on that uh, in, in that part of the world. 
And then, of course, uh, last board member, uh, you know, Armando Valdez. You guys all know Armando, a, a big figure in the in the sport there, and been around elite forever. So, I mean, all those folks, you know, they 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 dig deep and they know what it, it the the price the price is uh, of doing this is is higher than than I think a lot of people know. And uh, you know, for them to come in year after year and do this, it's uh, it's just a, an amazing thing for the sport. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Brian Lee. Um... I definitely want to get him on at some point during the season. Uh, I talked to him briefly a few times and he seems like a cool guy. So I'd like to get his story out there for sure. Yeah. Brian, if you're listening, let's set it up. Um. <laughs> Brian, Brian's a great, you know, Brian will be a great, Brian says, Brian says what he means. You know what I mean? Like there's no guessing what Brian's thinking. Um, and that, that's good and bad. <laughs> and he knows that. So I can, I can say it. I love Brian. Uh, he's a fantastic guy. But you know, if Brian thinks your idea is dumb, he's going to say, yeah, I think that's a dumb idea. You know? um, and he'll always listen. And, and there have been a lot of times when Brian's position has started off as, there's no way I'll support that. And then it's come around to, yeah, okay, I'm in. Uh, he's super reasonable. But, but you know, he says exactly what he means. And, um, and I appreciate that so much about him. Yeah, I, I kind of got that vibe right away because um, we kind of argue like basketball and football and stuff like that. So like <laughs> this will be a fun one for sure. Uh, yeah, definitely want to set that up down the road. It would be, yeah. All right. So you've definitely given us a lot about yourself. You've definitely given us a lot as far as what you've been able to, you know, put us through or put put up with in the sport and progressing it forward. You also, you know, ran through a gauntlet as far as um, – the crowdsource question goes and I gotta say you've been poised throughout so I might retire this segment after um after this interview but now I turn the tables and you can ask me three dodgeball related questions and we'll rapid fire them as quickly as I can yeah uh well so I, I think one thing I I, I would ask you is um What's what's your biggest question? So you know, you 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 speak to a lot of folks. You get a you probably get a really good overview of uh, you know you get the player perspective, you get the organizer perspective, you get the you know governance perspective. Um, what's the big question that you would like to have answered in dodgeball? Ooh, <laughs> wow! Um, I felt that little knot in my throat, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the what's the one? I'm sorry. Repeat that again. What's the one question? Yeah, the question that you would like to have an answer to in dodgeball. I would want to say, um, I would want to ask, how can we market it better? And when I, and the reason I say that is because um, I, I love this game. Um, I, I love this game. I played it a little bit in high school, and I've been playing for 10 years, 11 here in the States. Uh, and I feel like not enough people know about it. Not enough people that I know. I mean, not enough people that I know outside the game know about it. And I know with, um, last year in Cancun or two, two years ago in, in Cancun, it was the number one thing on Twitch streamed. It wasn't Fortnite. It wasn't FIFA. It wasn't Call of Duty. It was dodgeball in Cancun number one on Twitch for the week that it was going on and if anything I'd like to have answered is I mean outside of this podcast which is now going international outside of 
sharing YouTube clips and team pages and even having better team presentation on the court, which I saw in uh, the UK when I went, what can we do to make it bigger? How can we improve the marketing? Because I feel like we have what I call like a powder keg effect. Like all we need is just that one lighter to just kick off and then it's, you know, it'll, it'll blow up. And I feel like we're right there, but what, how can we, you know, light the keg, so to speak? That'd be my. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a million dollar question, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's the great question. Um, so, yeah. Um, and I guess, I guess the um, uh, second question I would ask you is when you look at other sports, what's the one thing about other sports that you wish we did as, as a sport? I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit, um, but drug testing. Uh, so to kind of give you an idea about me, um, before I got into dodgeball, I did play uh, amateur football or amateur soccer. And we, even though our league was like very underfunded in, in, in terms of like the fields that we played at and sometimes uh, having access to like medical staff, for whatever reason, we had random drug testing. And um, I knew that was very expensive. Like we had to download an app on our phone and like in the, like in the mid 2000, uh, 2014, 2015 or whatever, uh, we had to download an app on our phone to determine where we were. Um, because if we were going to get drug, drug tested, we had to give, I don't know what you call those people, drug testers, testees, um, like up to the minute info of where we were and where we were going to be at a certain time. So um, I would love to see that implemented. And also I'd love to see instant replay and um, during games, I would love to see that, like maybe during like a rough discussion and just discuss whatever they're discussing or like see what they're discussing from a viewer's perspective. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely know both things are very costly and I understand it, <laughs> but that'd definitely be something I'd like to see. Yeah. And, and we get a lot of, um, you know, we were dealing with a, a potential broadcast partner a year ago, well over a year ago now, I guess. And um, one of the things they said to us in no uncertain terms is, You've got to find a way to get the camera in people's faces and you need to find a way to capture stats. And if you can't do those things, you're going to struggle with a broadcast audience, right? Because the average person is going to tune in. They'll, they'll get the gist of the game and all the rest, but they need to know, like, is this a good player? Is that a good player? You know, and, and, and they need to kind of, um, uh, they need stats. They need personality. They need exposure. Um, so those are all things that are on the radar, but you're right. They, they're not cheap. And some of them are just difficult. You know, we've, we've gone over stats with people with different groups. Uh, we've got somebody who's trying to develop a stat, um, a way of, of, of capturing stats for dodgeball. Um, you know, we've tried manual, we've tried electronic. They're all fraught with error. There's always going to be a margin of error. Um, you know, it's kind of like when you look at football and you look at like, you record like half sacks. Well, imagine that, but for every single thing that happens in dodgeball, right? <laughs> like, oh, two balls hit at once. Well, who gets the hit or, you know, and so anyway, that's a big issue, but uh, you're bang on. So the third question I'm going to ask you is a bit of a fun one because I, I, there's always kind of this little window into somebody. Um, you're playing a game and uh, it's down to a two-on-one. You're the one. Now, this is, this is your fantasy. You get to play this out. How do you win that game? So 
I'm gonna kind of breeze through it and um, but kind of give details. So if I'm the two on one and somehow it often plays out way out with me, I always determine who's the threat first. So to kind of give you an idea about me, um, in case you didn't hear my episode last week, um, I come from a martial arts background as well as a sports background. And the one thing I, I was taught in, in uh, dojos and, and gyms is don't go into a fight when the numbers are against you. And if the numbers are against you, determine the threat, eliminate, move on. Um, no fluff, just determine the threat, eliminate, move on. So let's say if I know the player to my left will call player A as a sharp cannon and player B to my right is someone who can curve the ball but isn't really fast. I'm looking to determine who's most vulnerable at a certain point just to progress to the next step. Now, if it's one-on-one, it's fair. You know, it's fair game. The threat's already determined. But the, the hardest step is the first step because you want to determine, hey, who's most vulnerable and who's the most threatening at that current moment. And once you establish that, a one-on-one is is pretty easy to determine. You just determine your space in correlation to what um, the attack is presenting to you. And then you just go from there. At that point, it's like, I'm really calm. Uh, you know, some players kind of panic in that situation, but having that principle and having that mindset is just like, okay, well, it's, now it's routine for me because at least in my mind, I know what I have to do and I just have to execute. Good. All right. Yeah, thanks for that. It's always <laughs> interesting to know how people think, right? You know, like, I mean, it's a little more complex than my strategy of turtling and hope they get tired, right? But uh, <laughs> your, your approach is a little better. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those are my three questions for you. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, I don't have knots or anything like that prior to a game. So if it comes down to it, it's like, okay. You know, it's like, I, I tap into that Black Mamba mode. I'm just like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> awesome. Um, so before we wrap this up, um, I have this idea of, for season five, having the theme of legacy. So to you, Dwayne Wazinski, head of the WDBF, who I would dub the head of the table, because it's me being a dork. How would you like to be remembered once you walk away? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think there's lots of ways you could leave a mark in a role like this. But to be honest, like, you know, if you're asking me what I hope people say kind of behind my back when I'm gone is, um, is that, you know, I brought people to the table. I brought people to the same table. Um, I think that's something I've tried to do hopefully successfully just to, to the most part in the last few years is, is build bridges, right? Um, I think the, the sport, if the sport's going to survive, it's got to be unified. And when we started Dodgeball Canada, the theme in those first two years, the maybe the only theme in the first year was getting people in the tent. You know, you play rubber, you play foam, doesn't matter. You know, come in the tent, you play 12 people aside, doesn't matter, come into the tent. And when you get everyone in the tent, then you could do a lot of great things because now you're, you're talking with numbers, right? You're, you're, you're looking at economies of scale. You're looking at leveraging um, a bigger voice. And so that's kind of been the philosophy for the WDBF. It's kind of, you know, the work that we did with Europe to try to find some common ground. It's the work we're continuing to do with the WDA to try to find some common ground. Um, you know, and I, I'm going to be honest, I don't think I'm going to be the president that gets dodgeball into the Olympics. I don't think I'm going to be the president that gets 
dodgeball into the Commonwealth Games. Those would be great things, you know, or the Pan Am Games. Those would be great things. I don't know that'll be me in, in the time that I've got. Um, but if when all is said and done, people will say he was good. He was a collaborator, you know, uh, and, and, a, and a bridge builder. I will be very happy with that. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, I would say, and I would also like to add, um, albeit we met briefly a couple of years ago, um, you were actually really approachable. And I want to add to that. Because um, for someone like me, who you would think interviews a lot of people, talks to a lot of people, it's very hard for me to like approach people, if that makes sense. And I remember just during that day, one of the highlights of just like putting the floor together and everything was just the few instances where we talked and uh, you're really approachable, man. So I will, I will add that to how you would be remembered. And for anyone who hasn't met you easily, one of the most approachable guys in the sport, um, friendly face and just all around good guy. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> that a lot because I, you know what I think to be honest, like for, for all of us that are doing this at whatever level in any capacity, um, you know, approachable, has to be has to be the way you know uh, i think that uh, uh this idea of having kind of someone at arm's length or someone who's kind of removed from it it's not going to work this sport has to, it's so community driven it's so driven by by everyone on the front lines that um that you know it it, it needs to be that way and, and i'm glad it is and i'm glad your perception is that it is because that's i think what we're striving for right at the end right all right so before we wrap this up um is there any shout outs you like to give? Yes. <laughs> I want to give up. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I, I gave a little bit of love to my, uh, my fellow board members in the, in the WDBF and, and uh, um, you know, in, in the work that they're doing. And, and there's a million people I could call by name in, in terms of the stuff that they've done in their communities and there, but I, I, I'm giving the big shout out and, and, and the, the most deserving one to my wife, <laughs> Kiri. Um, you know, this is uh this is an exhausting role, you know, and when she got me in dodgeball back in, in 2006, uh, I think she was just trying to get me, you know, back into a gym and, and exercise. Um, but, uh, you know, I kind of grabbed it and, and, and ran with it a bit further than <laughs> she probably would have hoped. <laughs> and I mean, you know, we were like the amount of travel, uh, I mean, 2018, 2019 were two years where I made, oh God, I don't know how many trips. 20 flights, you know, for dodgeball and stuff. And, and uh, uh, the amount of hours, uh, evenings and weekends and getting up early and, Hey, can you get the kids out of the door? Cause I got to call at seven because it's with somebody in, you know, somebody in, in Europe. Um, it, it, she puts up with so much. And, um, and I don't know if this at the end of the day is going to be a win in my ledger, you know, and, um, but she knows that I, how much it means to me and how much it means to have this um, go where, where, where I, I hope I can help bring it. And um, so anyway, her, you know, it, I, she keeps me sane, right? And, and, you know, to Rosie's question about how, how can I continue to do this? Well, I, I couldn't if I didn't have people behind me, but she's been everything. So big shout out to that. Oh, <laughs> it's actually very sweet. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, thank you for your time and we will wrap this up. And that was my interview with Dwayne. Dwayne, thank you so much for hopping on and 
kicking off season five of the international series. I also want to give a shout out to Archetypes Collide for their intro and their closing. Um, great music by those guys. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to hear it, you know, I, I suggest you download their old catalog. They're really good. Um, man, season five, man. I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the guests I can bring on and the content uh, to be produced this year. And I looked forward to the challenge of providing said content and improving, improving on what we did last year, because I, I, I see this, this season as a season where we go even further. And if you're listening at this point, thank you so much. I will announce my next guests uh, shortly. And um, yeah, man, me and Justin are going to ride this and we're going to make this arguably the best season ever. And give you guys something to look forward to in Steve's absence. So thank you, Steve. Thank you, Justin. To my future guests, thank you. To my past guests, thank you. And to you guys, thank you so much. Um, we're going to make this bigger. Trust me. We're, we're only scratching the surface of our potential. And you guys will see the product of it. So with that, um, stay tuned, take care, and I'll see you next time. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. Just kicking off this new season and somehow I forgot to set up or forgot how to set up. So <laughs> no I took problem. a break from the holidays and uh, I was like, how do I do this again? <laughs>